And Jesus, in our passage today, is giving some instructions because he knows there's a day coming where there'll be followers like us who won't have the privilege to see him face to face. And in our passage today, he's giving some instructions on what that's going to look like, where he's going, what they need to do. So open your Bibles to John chapter 13, and then we're going to bleed into chapter 14. While you're, while you're flipping there, uh, quick introduction. I'm Chip. I'm a student. This is Joel. Uh, if you're expecting Vic this morning, I'm sorry. You're going to have to settle for me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Mr. Skinner's got my yes. back. That's great. Yeah, Chip taught with us last week, and uh, it's really exciting to have him back. Chip, uh, like you just mentioned, he's a student at UGA, struggling to make it through. You're close to the end. Something How close like are that. you? Uh, two semesters. All right. Yeah. Two more semesters. You stretch it out over one more football yeah, season. Yeah, right? exactly. So, um, Don't tell my parents. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what have you loved about UGA, being a college student there? Ooh. Oh, man. Um, I, getting, to, getting to meet all the, all the people. Yeah. Like, like tons of different people from a ton of different backgrounds has been re- really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And um, going to football games, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of like the football games. Now, y'all might not know this about Joel. Joel also was a student at UGA. He wasn't just a student, though. He was also on the football team. I don't think most people know that about you. Yeah, yeah. Do you still have your jersey? I, yes. Yeah, yeah, I've got one jersey I held okay. on to just to like prove it in case anyone ever says, yeah. like, wait, you didn't play. And I, actually, I have the jersey. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no. And so UGA students, I know you're in the room, UNG students, uh, students other students, uh, other adults who are here um, from our church, it, we are so glad you have chosen to be here. And um, I, I thought... That, we love sports. I love sports. I thought I would start this morning with a, um, a sporting illustration, if you will. Okay, a baseball season is actually pretty close. I'm a big baseball fan. Pitchers, catchers, they just reported. So I started thinking about that, and there's no other baseball fans in here. Okay, I see. Um, yes, there's one. Okay. There's a legendary broadcaster. His name is Vin Scully. He was a broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Get this, for 67 years. Isn't that amazing? Could you imagine doing one thing, you know, you're, for 67 years, that was his, his job. And legendary, one of the best that's ever done it. And I, was, I came across this, this moment that he had. I would never watch the Dodgers unless they're playing the Braves. But I came across this moment he had where the Dodgers were playing the Giants. And uh, he tells this story, and I'm just going to read his transcript on the air. This is how it went down, okay? Two years ago, this, I need to do it with a, a voice, I think, like an announcer voice probably. Two years ago in spring training, he and his wife, now he's talking about Madison Bumgarner, a great pitcher for the Giants. He and his wife were roping cattle, which is what they do. One, one pitch, sinker low, ball, ball two, two and one. And they were startled by a large snake and Madison thought it was a rattlesnake, so he grabbed an ax and he hacked the snake to pieces. But there's something more to the story. Two-one pitch, low, ball three, (laughs) three and one. When his wife, Allie, an expert field dresser, examined what was left of the snake, she found two baby jackrabbits inside pieces of the snake and extracted them. Three-one pitch to Turner, way inside, (laughs) ball four. 
And after she extracted them, a short while later, the Bumgarners noticed that one of the rabbits had moved slightly. It was alive. Well, his wife brought the rabbit back to their apartment. The next few days, they kept it warm, bottle nursed it, and the rabbit soon was healthy enough that they released it into the wild. And Madison said, just think about how tough that rabbit was. First, it gets eaten by a snake, then the snake gets chopped to pieces, and then it gets picked up by people and it lives. And it's all true. Meanwhile, line drive, base hit the center by Kendrick, <laughs> and Dodgers are in business first and second, nobody out. So, first of all, that's one of the best sports moments I've ever heard in my life. But second, I loved how he tucked in there as he's telling this incredible story. It's all true. And it's sort of what we've, what's been happening for us as we've gone through the book of John. We've been reading through this gospel. If you're brand new, that's okay. We're in, or I don't know, halfway or so, a little, a little past halfway. We're in John 13 and 14, like I said. And up until this point, John has been laying out all these stories about Jesus. In fact, he's given us seven big signs. John was one of the disciples of Jesus, one of his closest companions, and he takes his gospel to show us these seven signs. It's everything from Jesus turning water into wine to walking on water to healing people. Seven signs, and he's saying, look, it's all true. I've given you this story. And now we've gotten to a point where we've, got, we've had these amazing signs, and Jesus, it sort of zeroes in to this smaller crowd. Here's Jesus. In fact, you're going to see in our... Uh, first verse, look at verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, that's Judas. It's down to Jesus and 11 of the disciples because Judas, who's going to betray Jesus, has now left the room. We're in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life before his death on the cross. And here's Jesus. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So it's him and his disciples, just 11 of them. And he's saying, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him at once. Jesus is pointing towards where things are headed in just a few hours to the cross. And if, if you're getting lost in all the glorifieds and the hymns there, mm -hmm. what Jesus is saying is that the glory of God is on full display in the person of Jesus. Right. So again, he's building towards the cross, the plot is thickening, we're working towards the climax, and he's saying, get ready. And what's so amazing about that is the fact that he is going to get glory in the cross. Mm. And I don't want you to miss that, that Jesus is going to be glorified at the cross, right? An instrument of death is going to bring glory to God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, only in the kingdom of God where paradoxes are totally normal, can we think about an instrument of death bringing glory to God? But that's what he's saying. Now he turns to the disciples, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus has said this, John records it in two other chapters previous to this, where he said to the Jews, to the crowds, he said to the crowds, listen, I'm going somewhere. And they misunderstand what he's saying, and the disciples are going to misunderstand as well. But Jesus has a different kind of affection towards his disciples. He calls them little children. Mm. you got a picture. They've just celebrated the Passover meal. And the Passover meal, uh, it's still common today. You would have the head of the household who would uh, conduct kind of the meal. 
And the children would, would have these set questions. They still do. They have these set questions that they ask the head of the household about Passover. They say, why, why is this night so significant? Why do we eat the bitter herbs? So they ask these series of questions. And Jesus is ta- has taken that place for them. Right? He's, the, he's the dad who's giving insight to his children of why the Passover was so significant, but not only that, but why what he's about to do is so significant. Mm-hmm. A, a few years ago, my dad, uh, you know, I guess we just got into the seasonal life, but my dad started kind of pulling me to the side and saying, hey, listen, you know, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to know this is what you do about this, and this is how you can take care of your mom, and you can do this, this, and this. And, you know, when you first hear that, you're like, I'm not really prepared to be talking about these things, but it's important. And that's where Jesus is at this point, okay? And he says, here's what I want you to know. And look at verse 34. Look what's on his heart. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're wondering, if you're paying attention, the command to love people is not new, right? Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he gets asked, what is the greatest commandment? Yeah. And what does he say? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says that the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, are summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. So you might be saying, why does Jesus say, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another? Because the command doesn't stop there. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So in the first command to love, what God says is love others as you love yourself. So the natural inclination of our heart is to look to our own interests first and then everyone else second. And the law makes us aware of how self-centered we are by saying, you have to treat other people as well as you love yourself. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, y'all pay attention. I'm about to redefine what love is. And I'm about to raise the bar. And the standard is gonna be set to a whole new level. You're not supposed to love other people just as much as you love yourself. You are supposed to demonstrate this costly, sacrificial love towards other people that I'm about to display towards you. Romans 5, 8 tells us, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We had not made any moves towards God, but he initiated and he loved us. And so Philippians 2 goes on to elaborate a bit on this love. It says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, well, what's our example in that? Philippians 2 continues, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who even though he was God, didn't count that something that he could take advantage of, but made himself nothing, and taking the very form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death. So our, our new standard as Christians is not just love others as we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is to love others as Jesus has loved us. Yeah, and he shows us this uh, throughout his life, but more importantly, the way that John sets all of this up is you, you have two big events. The first event is Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. So we just went through that last week. So that's, that's what's really, uh, where, where this is really coming from. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, and now he says, here's the command I have for you. Love others as I have loved you. Well, how, well, how's he loved others? He's just shown them, just you know, moments ago, w- what it looks like. Remember, 
whose feet Jesus washed? Judas. The man who was going to betray him, the man who looked like he was just like the other 12, like very close inner circle of Jesus. Jesus knows he's going to betray him. John makes that clear in the way he presents that story, and yet Jesus washes his feet. He says, this is the kind of love I want you to have for one another. This week I asked um, Carly and Caroline, who interned with our church and uh, are under me in our communications ministry, and I asked them, I said, could you just send out like a quick text that asks some questions about our church? Uh, just a couple questions. And probably some of you in this room filled it out. We got, we got back like almost 50 responses just like within minutes. And uh, one of the questions I asked is, give me one word to describe Watkinsville First Baptist. And I was going through, it was sort of like a test. Is anyone going to say loving? Because look, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So is anyone going to say that's, that's the chief characteristic of our church? Hmm. And uh, we got back the responses, and it was, you know, I, I was a little skeptical. I don't know why, but I didn't know, like, maybe because we aren't prone to, to say that that way. And maybe that needs to change. Yeah, what, what did it say? We're and all kind of So I wanted to yeah. like be like, come on, guys, what are you doing? But then I started like reading through them. And I was like, well, those are pretty good, actually. Yeah. Uh, descriptors of how people said, like our church has been a home to them. How people said that, you know, that this was a community, that the, that the Bible was, was important. It was like all these amazing things. But we have to go back to this. What does it look like for us to live this out? I want you to flip just quickly with me to John 17, to the right. A theologian, Francis Schaeffer, wrote a little booklet called The Mark of a Christian. And he walks you through John 13, 34, and 35. And then he connects it to John 17, 22. And 23. And he says, basically, you, you have to put these two things together to really get the full picture of what Jesus is saying. He says in verse 22, the glory, this is Jesus praying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Here's what he says, Francis Schaeffer says about these verses. Our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe, or it does not fit into the structure of John 13 and 17. And if, listen to this, if the world does not observe this among true Christians, the world has a right to make two awful judgments. That we are not Christians, and that Christ was not sent by the Father. Mm -hmm. That's how serious this is. In the most you know, meaningful moment here in Jesus' ministry up until this point, he says, here's the command I have for you. Love one another as I have loved you. And he elevates it to the level in which he says, look, everyone looking on at us as a church, if they don't see it, mm -hmm. They have the right to judge us. Now, we, we'll, maybe we'll have time. We don't have time right now to get into this. 
Uh, maybe we can in our podcast if you want to listen to that. But that, that doesn't mean how the world defines it, hmm. where like, you could just accept anything and everything because that's love. It can be very unloving to you know, say something to someone that, to allow something from someone that's actually going to harm them. But love has been demonstrated through the life and words of Jesus. He's shown us what love is. Yeah, and I'll, I wanna make a quick observation for the people that are maybe a little bit on the younger side around my age. We have an incredible blessing in that we have resources available to us electronically, sermons, podcasts, articles, that from phenomenal Bible teachers, doctrinally solid, Christians for centuries have never known the type of access to scriptural teaching that we have known. That's an incredible blessing. We can listen to a a Bible-centered preacher on the West Coast in our bedroom, and that's awesome, and we should thank God for that. But I don't know that we're actually living more loving. Like, so the question has to be posed, is that truth actually transforming our lives? Because I don't know that our generation in the church is characterized by this radical love. And if, if, an, if a right understanding of what Jesus did is supposed to result in that love, then, then we have to go, where is the disconnect at some point there? Yeah, that's right. Um, let me just say this. <laughs> my favorite person to be around in the whole world, my favorite person to be around in the whole world, it's not Chips, it's not Vic, even though I love being around those guys. It's my two-year-old right now. My two-year-old, almost two-year-old daughter. Literally, I walk in the door and she comes running at me like, Daddy! And I'm like, this kid loves me. (laughs) And she wants to hug me and she wants me to be with her. That's good for your ego, too. I mean, it is fantastic. Because I know in a few years, like some of my older kids, they, this doesn't always just keep working this way. So, just think about that. What, what, would, what would it look like for us to truly demonstrate the love that Jesus has demonstrated for us so that the world can see that? And he's talking about within this group. If there's someone here who has needs this morning, we need to meet it. If, if there's people in here in whom we need to serve, we need to figure that out and do that. So let's do that, church. Let's keep reading. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because he just said in verse 33, you will seek me a little while longer and where I'm going, you cannot come. So Peter's like, hey, Jesus, okay, help us out here. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. Mm-hmm. Similar response to what he said just a few verses ago. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three mm-hmm. times. Yeah, I, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. And we read this and we know how Peter turns out and we go, oh, Peter, you missed it here, but it's okay. Don't miss the powerful juxtaposition between Jesus speaking to Judas and and Jesus speaking to Peter. He predicts the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter and they're put right next to each other. And I think think it serves there as a warning for us. The seeds of, of, of betrayal and denial are really in all of our hearts. We are not so unlike both Judas 
and Peter. But we know how the story ends, right? Judas walks out into the darkness, as we covered last week, never to return. Peter, uh, he's, <laughs> he, he's got some, some bravado here. Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, a little girl's going to ask you if you know me, and you're going to say no, right? And so, so Peter walks out too. But I mean, if, you have to remember right there, just insert this thought yeah. that uh, when they're at the table, if you remember this from last week, when they're at the table eating and Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, it's not like everyone at the table goes, oh, that's Judas. Yeah, he's the guy. That's going to be the one that's going to do it. They we look know. around because they don't know who it they is. They don't know who it is. Yeah. So uh, that's the point that I think you're making that, that it's, it's the same. it could be said for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus is again and again and again pushing back against them and saying, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong. And, and he looks at Peter and he says, um, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And of course, that's gonna come to pass. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes at this point. Things aren't looking good. You, you have these first century messianic expectations of what the Messiah mm-hmm. is supposed to do. Okay? He's supposed to come in with a sword, set up an earthly kingdom, kick out the Romans, set up a rule, and they're pretty sure Jesus is the guy. He's given them signs, but he's not doing that. Okay? He's being cryptic. He, he's uh, kind of reclusive. They're not picking up on his message. Philip and Thomas go on to ask more questions. They're clearly not picking up what he's putting down. Okay? He says one of them's going to betray him. He tells Peter he's going to walk out, and now several times, after he told all of them, follow me, remember that was his command to the disciples, now he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, how are we supposed to follow you, right? (laughs) So the disciples are understandably confused and perturbed, okay? Y'all tracking with me here? I wish the divide wasn't here between chapter 13 and 14. I wish someone hadn't put it there. Those are not divine, okay? So I'm going to jump straight into 14 verse 1. Please read with me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus answers, let not your hearts be troubled. That's what he says to us too. Mm -hmm. Whatever baggage you're bringing in the room, let not your hearts be troubled. Whatever crap you had last week, let not your hearts be troubled. Whatever you are dealing with, let not your heart be troubled. How, Jesus? We're really confused. This message isn't making sense. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying he must be the sole object of our belief. He must be what our faith is in. He must be what our belief is in. If you've grown up in the church like I have, you've probably heard the phrase, believe in God, have faith in God, trust in God, so many times that when it's said, you don't feel anything. This, uh, along with the command to love others as Jesus has loved us, might be the most radical thing we're going to say this morning. Do you realize how countercultural it is to say, believe in God? Because what does our culture say? Well, exactly, believe in yourself. I walked through my room this week. I have a Kleenex packet. Do you know what it says? 
Believe in yourself. The great Kleenex theologians. Let me tell you, when I Wait, what? I'm not making this up. What? I'm not making this up. That's real. When, let me tell you, when, I, when I'm running a fever in bed and I'm snotty, I am the last person my faith needs to be in, right? <laughs> um, for any of you that have had a class on Ag Hill, okay, uh, uh, that, that hill is steep. Uh, and if you've come up from Sanford Stadium with the physics building to your right, there's a, a steep staircase, and it's steep. I'm huffing and puffing every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And up at the top of it, is a brick support that supports the chemistry building. And, and months, if not years ago, someone took chalk and they wrote on, I'm getting nods, people know about this. They wrote on the brick that you can see the whole way up. You've got this. You've got this. And there's a wall behind it and it says, believe in yourself. What is the message of our world? You're adequate. Uh-huh. You measure up. You, you're okay. You're enough. Put your faith in yourself. That's what Peter's doing. Oh, Jesus, I've got this. I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Jesus moves towards us and he says, you can't put your faith in yourself. No one has lied to you more than you've lied to you or me. No one has hurt me more than I've hurt me. We are our own worst enemy in many respects. And Jesus moves towards us and he goes, don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust in me. And they have every right to be a little shaken at this point, right? Because Jesus has kept saying over and over again, like, you know, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, what do you mean by this? But here's why he says you don't have to be troubled. He gives them these promises. Uh, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. We're just saying soon that song at the very end of our worship set. We're thinking about Jesus coming again and taking us. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I love C.S. Lewis's quote that says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There's something, there is something deep inside of us that longs and desires for what I think only the presence of God will satisfy. Okay? It started back in the garden. (laughs) You see, this is what we were made for. We were made to walk with God. Adam and Eve were in this setting that was perfect, not just because sin hadn't entered the world, but for the fact that God was there, present among them. You see, that's what I think our hearts long for. And here is the beautiful, amazing, sometimes astounding news that when Adam and Eve sinned, like we all have sinned following their example, when they sinned, they had to be removed from the presence of God. They were now going to die a physical death and a spiritual death apart from God, except that someone would make a way. Hmm. And there's a little promise in Genesis 3, that tells us there's a way that's going to be made. The proto-euangelion. Yes. It's like the precursor to the gospel. Theologians love fancy words. That's right. I'm glad for you said that things. this morning. And so we move through the narrative of the Old Testament, and you have God showing his people that he's not throwing away his plan to be with his people. You have God showing up uh, in 
to his people there in Egypt when they're enslaved and God rescues his people and he says, here's what I want you to do. After he rescues his people, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put up a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, it's not a monument to me. No, this is where I'm going to come and dwell with you. I want to be with my people. But of course, you keep following the narrative and the people just keep messing it up. And Jesus, or, and God, ha- God the Father has a perfect plan, and his name is Jesus, and Jesus is going to show up. And he is the very presence of God here among his people. You know him as Emmanuel, God with us. God is here among his people. And then he makes this promise that I'm going away but there will be a day where you will be with me. Mm. And so just let your hearts rest in this. Why don't we have to be troubled? Because listen, if you believe in God, if you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life, then you can know that one day you will see him face to face. So what, what's the deal though with Jesus saying, where I'm going, you cannot come? He, he, he talks about dwelling with us a lot and telling them to follow him. So why does he keep saying this over and over? Yeah, so Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. What's, what's he mean by that? I think it has like multiple meanings. Right there, immediately, it means that Jesus is going to go to the cross. And he's told his disciples, listen, you can't go there, only I can go there. Just like when Peter has his feet washed, he's like, come on, Jesus, um, let me wash your feet. And Jesus says, no, 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 only I can do that. And so Jesus is showing them, listen, I'm the only one who can go to the cross. I'm the only one who has lived this perfect life that all of you should have lived. So I'm the only one who can die this death on your behalf. And he says, so where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And eventually he's gonna, where he's going is gonna be heaven. That's what he's promising them. Where I'm going is heaven. And you will follow me there one day. I promise one day you will be with me. And he says, here's the way to get there. I am the way, mm. the truth, and the life. Yeah. Now, in today's context, to say that Jesus is the way, that seems pretty narrow-minded, He's right? He's making an exclusivity claim, yeah. yeah. So what do we do with that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Jesus makes no bones about it. They, they ask him, hey, we don't know the way. And he goes, huh, funny you should ask. It's me. I'm the way to God, <laughs> right? And, and so to apply this to our setting, point blank, what this is saying is all other religions are wrong. Every other religion is, is man here, God here, we're trying to get there, and every other, prescription, every other religion lays out a different prescription to work towards enlightenment, work towards nirvana, work towards the rewards of Allah, whatever it is. And Jesus says, they're all wrong. No one, no one can go where I'm going. I'm the only one that can make atonement for sin. I'm the only one that can do this. But he says he's adequate. He will totally take the wrath of God on the cross. That's what this is all building for. And, and he tells them, you want to know how to get to God? You know it already. It's me. And so in, in our day-to-day life, Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity that he is the only way that we can have access to God. Romans 9 and 10 elaborate on that too. Um, he, he also is saying he doesn't share. He doesn't share with idols in our hearts. He doesn't sit nicely in one corner of our heart and let sin roam in the other. Um, and so this seems narrow-minded, right? Yeah, this bucks up against our culture. But if Jesus is who he says he is, right. if, if he truly lived this life, he tells us um, towards the end, it, if you are going to believe, 
believe on account of me or my works. If he, if he did these miracles, if he lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and then rose back to the grave, he deserves our everything. That's right. That's right. Let's, let's read those verses, John 14, 10 and 11. Because Philip said to him, Lord, just come on, just show us the Father, mm-hmm. that's enough. Uh, Jesus is like, have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Now verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. You see, this is what Jesus leaves with his disciples when he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. This is what he leaves us with this, belief. John's taking us back to the beginning. In John 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. You see, if Jesus was the word there at the beginning, before anything was ever created, Jesus was, then maybe he can say something like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm -hmm. If Jesus is someone who can turn water into wine, he can walk on water, he has power over nature. If Jesus is someone who can bring dead people back to life, if Jesus can raise himself back from the dead, then maybe when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that gives us the opportunity to believe. Believe his words, believe his works. John writes his gospel, John chapter 20, and he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Right before he says that in John chapter 20, he says this, In verse 29 of John chapter 20, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We have the opportunity to believe in this Jesus who John presents to us so beautifully to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this morning, we bounce that back to you and say, will you believe? Will you believe? Will you allow him to be the sole object of your belief, not in yourself, not in anything else, but in him alone. Mm. Will you believe in him for salvation? Believe that it's not by your own works, but by grace alone. Believe in what he did, the work he did on the cross. That's what we call you to this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had together, that we've been able to open the scriptures and see you. For those struggling with unbelief, may they just call out right now, Lord, help my unbelief. Let me believe. Lord, for those who believe in you, May we truly walk out in love. May we do the things you've called us to do in loving each other and following you and pointing everything in our life back to you, Jesus. We declare today that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. Thank you, Jesus, for being our way. And it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.